This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, you're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick McGuire. Yes, Matt Chorley is still away. Today, we're asking the question that's animating the Tory leadership race. Just why does everybody hate the Treasury? But before that, it's time for our Economist panel. All-star mix today. Rachel Sylvester is still away. So it's Patrick Kidd and Libby Purvis. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yep, 10.39. Now it's time for our favourite fixture of the show. No Rachel Sylvester this week, so instead we got Patrick Kidd, Times Diary Editor. Morning, Patrick. Morning. Lovely to have you back on the Columnist panel. And Libby Purvis, Times Columnist. Morning, Libby. Morning. Now, I think we all know there's no point pretending we're going to talk about the comment pages just yet because there's only one item on the agenda. Did we all watch the Lionesses last night, Libby? Oh, gosh, yes, yes. I started watching it on my phone down in the pub and then finished back home. And it was wonderful. I mean, it's not just about football. I think there's a captain, Williamson, said uh, it's not just about football. What everyone just saw was these young women demonstrating that they are strong and competent and carefully trained. They react fast. They're cooperative as a team. They're very resolute, you know, when it got hard after the German goal. And an awful lot of the things thrown at women about temperament or being weaker or, you know, bitching each other and not working together, it just doesn't stick. You know, they're just leaping around. They were magnificent. I thought it was a great, great moment. Uh, I mean, 66 years since the men have been trying to win one of these international things. You know, a load of women come along, bang, done it. And and, and, and they did it, Patrick, in a much shorter period of time. You've, you've covered sport for a long time. You, you will have, you know, traced the development of the, of the game, of course. But remember... The women's game was banned by the FA until 1970. You know, within 52 years, they're champions of Europe. And when you compare the men's game, they've had uh, you know more than 125. And uh, let's just say they're, they've got a much less successful hit rate. Well, it, it's extraordinary, isn't it? That, that for 50, I think it was 1922 it was banned. So, so for about 50 years, the sport was banned for women to play. Now, of course, it's, uh, women have been very successful in other sports. Um, we, they won the Women's Cricket World Cup of 1973. So what, what was that? 46 years before the men won the Men's Cricket World Cup. And I, I was there when the England women's rugby team won their World Cup. Um, but I suppose football is the national sport, so that's the one that, that seems to matter most for people. And and as as Libby says, it's they're playing for each other, and 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 the, the deter- 
determination, the resolution, not so much the final, actually, but it was the quarterfinal against Spain when they were trailing with about 10 minutes to go. Is that mm. it? Was that it? And they scored twice and, and pulled it out of the bag. I mean, that's a wonderful determination. Never give up. Um, and the men's team so, never show that bottle, do they? <laughs> well, I'm sure they have. I mean, the thing is, football's not really my sport. So uh, am I allowed to say I found the game a bit dull? Because <laughs> I find most men's games dull. At least, at least um, you watch it. Well, I was gonna, that, that's what I was going to ask. Did you, were you watching it at home, Patrick? I was watching it at home. Um, yeah, I mean... Is your, is your, is your daughter now saying she wants to play football and disappointing you because I imagine you wanted to be a good uh, a good blindside flanker or a, uh, a wicketkeeper <laughs> she, or something? She did play toddler rugby. Um, I, I was chatting to Tracy Crouch, the sports minister, last week, and she said that when she was at school, mad keen on football, girls couldn't play, and that when she goes into schools these days and tells them that, there's an audible gasp from both boys and girls. And she's really pleased with that because it's just not a concept to them that girls can't play football and although my daughter's not really in, 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 into football in her class she's, she's just finished primary school there's a really strong football team and they've won trophies and, and it's part of the ethos of the school is that the girls succeed so let's hope what happened last night inspires more girls to go on but also that inspires people to go and watch them because eighty-seven thousand at Wembley is great but to use the phrase can they do it on a wet night in Stoke um it's it's when you get the fans coming out to watch them in games that don't matter so much nationally that's when you know you've cracked it yeah turning up to the small often sadly non-league grounds that house the women's top tier libby did you ever think one of the interesting things is is that is these sporting events which when people who don't really follow it as a whole mm. suddenly get inspired i remember the first time that happened to me was years and years ago when sunderland won the fa cup bob stoko running across the pitch arms outstretched with his trilby on you i remember well i don't was, remember it but it was extraordinary. I just remember watching the the end of that game. I was in a in a, in a local radio station. We all had the telly on in the corner, and you know it was the braveness. It was the fact that they 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 were just ahead, but they weren't being defensive. They were still storming away, trying to win even better. You know, and I think sometimes you see that spirit in athletes, and it 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 translates into something much bigger and makes everybody feel better about everything. And and did you you know it's it's remarkable. Someone sent me we we did an item about. Uh, women's football on the show on Friday, which you can listen to on the Redbox podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, of course, listeners. And the really striking thing is I got a load of tweets during that, and, and someone sent me a, a press clipping, for even from 20 years ago, uh, from the, I think it was a newspaper, City Diary, and they, they, they had a picture of a women's football team who represented a, a bank or a clearinghouse or something. And I found it really interesting because the tone of the coverage was very sort of, you know, laddish and blokey and was saying, yeah. you know, I wish this picture, I wish they didn't have their shirts on or whatever. And, and that sort of, those attitudes have completely evaporated, Libby. Why, why do you yeah. think that is? What, what is it, you know, because what, what has it taken? I, I think it's, it's just they're so, they're so good. They're so good and they kept on winning and winning really matters. And of course, women, <laughs> we do get this sort of, um, because of all the fuss about biology and so on at the moment, you know, women and... and I mean, two of these players in the team uh, are mothers and one of them from I think fairly recent IVF treatment you know which every woman knows kind of knocks people sideways but there they were they were out there playing extraordinary top grade athletic wild football and I thought that you, you know that it just said something about women uh, which it will be very hard to gainsay now. There'll be quite a lot of, of uh, men who won't be able to make the generalisations that they often have about what women are like, and I think that's fun. Well, speaking of football, Libby, let's talk about footballers' wives because you've got an excellent column uh, in this, the Times this morning talking about influencer culture and how some people, some celebrities, can only 
exist by monetizing their reputation. Rebecca Vardy, of course, who came a cropper in the courts last week, is one. You say Meghan Markle is the other. Talk us, talk us through it. Well, I got fascinated by the first half of the Tom Bauer book. Now, it must be said, I am not a total Bauerite. He clearly is out to get her and really disliked her from the start. But he is a forensic researcher. And so what interested me was the pre-Harry time. You know, forget post-Harry, we can talk about that forever. But it, the way she worked herself up from being an actress of very middling talents and success, finding that Hollywood just didn't want her, you know, and... She became this influencer through through her, her blog and so on. And I, I sort of run through the steps that she had to take and the sort of things they have to do. Basically, it's a skill of proving somehow or looking attractive and likable and wise and well-connected by mentioning celebrities and successful and saying you love your followers and being an activist for charities and unarguable good causes. I mean, not an actual charity worker, just speaking of them and speaking of empowerment. And then you monetize it, then companies will buy you um, to promote their products. And it's a whole career of influencer, which is now actually, it's sort of regarded as a job. You can get professional indemnity insurance for it. And I just thought this is absolutely fascinating. And it's grown, people don't talk about it enough. What are influences? What have we done? What has the internet done to create this profession? Does this profession have an ethic? You know, is it just the Wild West? You know, is there an influencers guild? Is, yeah. Yeah. What what is what is what is good about it? I don't find much, but some people do. And what is bad? But I do want to acknowledge in the piece, and and some of the people under the line have not got the point at all, and say, oh, you're just bashing Megan. I point out what hard work it is. You've got to look perfect. You've got to seem perfect well, at all times. There's a You've got to be quote charming. in your column, Libby, from yeah. Philip Larkin saying he, he turned down going to events. He, he hated glad-handing because it was the, the tyranny of going around pretending to be me. Yep, and, and all writers know this, and we've all had the pretending to be, but they have to do, that's what influencers have to do, is pretending to be me, and never accept rejection, uh, never accept that you've been rejected, never accept that it's been a failure, always be charming, always be upfront. It's quite hard work, you know, always be perfect, seem perfect. And of course, what Rebecca Vardy did was she was suing because she was sort of starting out as a sort of influencer. Mm. She was starting to get deals and book deals and so on just by being Rebecca Vardy. <laughs> and and uh, so she felt that was damaged. Her name, her name by, was all know. she had. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This name and this persona that you create. And it seems to me a, a, an awful way to live not necessarily morally, but just for the individual. Uh, but my goodness, it's hard work. I mean, Meghan Markle has been Becky Sharp from Vanity Fair. It's, um, you know, not actually criminal in any way, as Becky indeed was, but, you know, just so determined, so determined. And I just wanted to sort of paint the portrait of this and remind people that influencers exist. Patrick, and as I say, could you be an influencer? No, I found myself reading Libby's column, which is fabulous, and I, I, I really recommend it, actually thinking that I'm so not set, uh, suited to be an influencer because I admit my failings too easily. I, 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 I get very bashful if people praise me and, and I talk up my, my flaws um, much you're, more than I should. You're too English, Patrick, you're too English. Well, maybe, but I mean, then I look at some writers, not you know, no one here, and see how confident they seem and, and, and how they talk themselves up. And I think, don't you have the same self-doubt I do? And that always really bothers me. So I couldn't be an influencer because I'd be too busy telling people I'm a bit rubbish. <laughs> maybe maybe you could, you know, you could be an influencer for, I don't know, for, for, for candor. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> 
yeah, I mean, you know, you must come across though a lot of uh, people trying to promote themselves by getting a mention, a coveted mention in the Times diary. Though you must encounter a lot of influencers, influencers or wannabe influencers in your line of work, Patrick. Well, yeah, and the number of um, uh, PRs who, who will contact me saying, "Here's a bland quote from from one of my clients. We put it in." I say, "No." I mean, if it's a good joke or in a good anecdote, I mean, you know, read what I do. I, I, I don't I hope tend to just put something in because of who they are. I've never cared about who they are. Um, when I started the diary column, now nine years ago, my first conversation with the editor about it is, I really don't want to write about famous people being at parties saying nothing very interesting. We'll leave that to, I won't name other newspapers, but um, that's what other people do. I said, I, I, I want to just be there to brighten people's lives and, and write some jokes. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's never been about the name for me. And, that, um, and hey, and bright, brighten people's lives and and bring us some jokes. Some some of them even good, Patrick, is what you do every day. Just before I let you go, this is notionally a politics show, of course. So, you know, I'll just get your brief views on, uh, you know, apparently there's a leadership election on as well as some football. Uh, Libby, you know, in a sentence or two, is Rishi Sunak finished? Well, sad to me because he was delivering an important and sober message about not expecting too much after the huge costs of COVID. And I would prefer him now to be saying, no, tax cuts are a fairy tale, but we'll do everything to prevent real hardship among the poorest. You know, sobriety, yet welfare. But instead of that, he's suddenly banging on about tax cuts and looking desperately competitive, uh, especially with his history about having resisted VAT cuts before. So it's just, uh, I think he's making a mistake. I think he's tarnished himself. And Patrick, what do you reckon? Is it Liz, is it Liz Truss heading well, vo- number 10? Voting only starts today, and there's still a month to go. So, I mean, yes, it looks like Truss is cruising. Um, I've been loving all the people coming out and saying they're big Truss fans. Suddenly, um, now, who, you know, it's the Yossa Hughes approach. If I, ever, you're both old enough to remember, boys. Job, yeah, gives a job, gives a job, I can do that, yeah. yeah. Um, because they've thought, they've realised he's going to win. So Tom Tugendhat and Nadim Zahari and... Um, Lots of others, Ben Wallace, have all um, been Liz Truss fans. I'm really looking forward to them spinning it round when Sunak suddenly turns this. Momentum in mid-August goes towards Sunak. And it takes me back to when when Boris Johnson dropped out of the race in 2016 and he had a press conference and the darlings were all in the front row. Yes. And there was a very on-his-way-up MP, who may be business secretary now, who um, was sitting there to endorse Boris. And as he came out of the room, he said to me, well, I've always been a Theresa May fan, really. <laughs> I just went along to see what Boris was going to say. And I thought, quasi, really? Um, and I just wonder whether all these who are now ardent Trust fans, if Sunak suddenly momentum comes back towards him, will be thinking, well, I, I just wanted to see what Liz was saying. But I've, wishes I've always loved fiscal conservatism. I hate tax cuts. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure we'll, we'll hear some of that in due course. That was The Columnist with Patrick Kidd and Libby Purvis. You can, of course, read them every week if you take out a subscription to The Times or pick up a paper. But now it's time for our big thing on why everybody in Westminster hates the Treasury. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to Passionate McGuire with the Redbox Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Now, it's the department Westminster loves to hate. Harold Wilson split it in two. Gordon Brown ruled it with a rod of iron. Brexiteers thought it was trying to keep Britain in the EU. And Margaret Thatcher wanted to shake it up to rouse Britain from the post-war consensus. This is what she said about the Treasury. I'm afraid that they had absorbed some of the decline that was obviously accepted by past governments. Indeed, it was reported to me that one of the senior civil servants had said, our task now is the orderly management of decline. And to that list, of course, we can add Boris Johnson, who wanted to run the Treasury from number 10 and now blames it for his downfall. But nobody seems to have quite as big a problem with the department as Liz Truss. We have had a consensus of the Treasury of economists, of the Financial Times, of other other outlets peddling a particular type of economic policy for the last 20 years. But what's wrong with the Treasury, that most powerful of Whitehall departments? Is it really, as one veteran of Theresa May and Boris Johnson's cabinets once told me, the department that exists to stop the government spending money? What's this orthodoxy Conservative MPs are suddenly talking about? Is the Treasury right to put prudence over popularity? And might the frontrunner for number 10 have a point about its power over our government? Rishi Sunak, of course, is learning those questions, cast a long shadow over Whitehall. Over the course of the next half hour, I'll get the answers from those who've been there and done it. And early this morning, I spoke to John Glenn, a Treasury Minister under two Prime Ministers and four Chancellors. He's now bucking one of them, Sunak, of course, and I began by asking him whether he recognised the picture being painted by his colleagues and why everybody seems to hate the Treasury. It's <laughs> um, a very interesting question because nobody likes to be told or challenged on whether we can afford something. And everyone believes and characterises their bid for spending as something that is uh, necessary and a good thing. And the Treasury just say no. The Treasury's job is to look at whether it's, it's been spending, spending the money, the proposals are spending money wisely, or whether it is actually not going to actually help the cause that it, it is said it's going to help. That is never going to make us, uh, or what, what not us anymore, not anymore, but uh, the Treasury popular. Um, that's always been the case. And... You know, I noted when Sajid Javid left uh, government, you know, there was an attempt by Boris Johnson to try and create a new fused unit between number 10 and number 11. And yet, you know, two years later, we see, you know, similar issues emerge again. There's always been tensions between number 10 and number 11 and wider government and the Treasury. I think what I would say is that having worked with Rishi over the last three years, yeah, he did challenge the orthodoxy. Nobody can say the furlough scheme was off or the bounce back loan scheme or the C-bill scheme was out of the uh, Treasury war book. He was one who challenged officials. I saw it firsthand. Uh, he, he challenged officials on how to do things differently and better. And indeed, what he's proposing now in terms of incentives for business investment, 
uh, also uh, an attempt to say, look, what we've had with low corporation tax rates that we've we've um, thought was helpful to business investment it hasn't led to the sort of business investment that we would have expected or wanted. So, you know, I, I defend him on the basis that he hasn't taken on the orthodoxy. He's been, in fact, a major challenger of it. And he has the capacity through his professional life and life experience to be very good at doing that. Treasury orthodoxy has become one of the great buzz phrases of this campaign and a great insult chucked at Rishi Sunak, chief among the rest of the candidates. Mm. But what do you understand it to mean? Well, I think it it is characterised as just saying no to anything popular. (laughs) And I I can sort of see why that rings true for people. But what we also got to understand is that you know, government is about making tough choices. And at the moment, taking t- making tough choices when uh, we've got a lot of debt, we've got high inflation and grave uncertainty facing the country. But that doesn't mean it, Treasury doesn't take decisions to allocate money. Look at the £1,200 package of measures, particularly to the most vulnerable, those on means-tested benefits to help with, with uh, fuel bills, etc. But uh, I think... Treasury is often an inconvenient um, person sat around the table because it obviously, you know, is in a position to look at the costs and look at the um, assumptions behind the value of those costs of monies being proposed to be spent. And is that orthodoxy always a bad thing? Well, I, I think that um, we always need to look at doing things differently. And over the last 25 years, we've seen you know, the seeding of independence and monetary policy to the Bank of England. We've had the creation of the Office for Budget Responsibility to provide uh, a degree of accountability over the decisions made by uh, Treasury ministers and uh, budgets. And uh, so it's not uh, fixed in stone, but I just think all governments need a strong arbiter of value for money and a candid assessment of what, uh, impact spending money in different ways will have. I just think that that will always be a tension in decision making. But I think the way to handle that tension is to work through those issues, not um, denigrate an institution which I think has served this country pretty well. And, and the chief criticism made of Rishi Sunak, who you're backing for the Conservative leadership and who you worked under uh, at the Treasury, mm-hmm. is that he is somehow been captured by Treasury officials and now takes, having once been a thrusting free marketer, now takes this bean counters approach to issues of public spending. Is that a fair characterisation? No, it's not. I mean, it's just sort of, you know, I get why you use those phrases and you need to sort of summarise to get the point over, but it is quite complex. And I think what's happened with respect to um, the interventions we made during COVID were unique. There was no orthodoxy. He defined those interventions. And most people would say businesses survived. I was here in Salisbury last night meeting members and one came up to him and said, without your furlough scheme, our business would not have survived. So I don't accept that characterization of him, but I do accept that he he does stand for sound money. It would have been extremely easy for him to go into this leadership election from the start and talk about tax cuts now. What he's trying to do is say, we can't afford them now. The priority is about dealing with inflation, but I do get that we need to get higher rates of growth. So we need to think about how we can deliver different incentives for business investment. And then we can have the radical tax vision, which he set out today, reducing income tax, which is what I think all conservatives agree on. 
And I think that the, the, the challenge that we face in this leadership election is that issue of uh, can we do it now or should we wait when till the public finances can afford it? And I think the evidence is that if you make 30, 40, 50 billion of tax cuts that are unfunded, whilst you're still spending enormous sums of money across different public services, which we need to do, um, it, there is no certainty around the outcome of that. And there's a massive risk in terms of what will happen to inflation and interest rates, which obviously hit people directly in their pockets. And seeing how it's ended for some of your bosses, John, would you ever want to be Chancellor yourself? <laughs> well, I've, I've come to uh, be very respectful of the Treasury and many of the officials that I work with for a very long time. Um, you know, I, I've, I just take one day at a time in my life as a politician. I've done lots of jobs in select committees, PPS to five different people. Um, and I would always look, look favourably on the opportunity to serve my country. But um, I don't sit in the bar thinking about what job I want. And what I do is think about how I can best use my skills, which are you know, complementary to some of my colleagues. Um, uh, probably some of my colleagues describe me as a technocrat. Um, I hope that I'm a, I was a sound minister who made some wise decisions. And I was always very pleased that David Frost and Jacob Rees-Mogg were very happy with what I did with financial services and delivered some radical changes post-Brexit, uh, which you know, stand, will stand the test of time and I think need to be replicated across other departments of government. Well, that was the former Treasury Minister, John Glenn, saying he doesn't sing in the bath like Norman Lamont, the former Chancellor. Well, now we can speak to Poppy Trowbridge, who is Special Advisor to the former Chancellor, Philip Hammond. And Poppy joins us now. Morning, Poppy. Good morning. You were at the Treasury for a very difficult time if we're thinking about the relationship between number 11, number 10, but also particularly Conservative MPs who have very particular ideas about how an economy should be run. And I remember in those days, Tory MPs would constantly have a pop at your then boss saying he was trying to frustrate Brexit. He was the architect of Project Fear. The Treasury were the only thing standing between Britain and the sunlit uplands of Brexit. What was it like during that period to be bearing the brunt of the of the Tory psychodrama? Well, in defence of my boss at the time, Philip Hammond, the term Project Fear was coined before he mm. took office. Uh, but... All of the slings and arrows are always aimed at the Treasury. But there is a secret about that post-Brexit vote administration that not many people know. Uh, it sort of received, uh, I wouldn't call it wisdom, but it's a sort of uh, legend that Theresa May and Philip Hammond uh, were constantly at each other's throats. What they don't know is actually their team worked really, really well together. And um, Liz Truss is talking about bringing more treasury thinking, treasury expertise, economic expertise into number 10 if she were to win. But the fact of the matter is the treasury's top people often migrate to number 10 and they provide the link to the treasury's thinking, to the treasury's policy on behalf of the prime minister. There is a lot of economic expertise in number 10. Now, tensions fray. They fray usually around... Um, party conference season. Uh, I watched uh, one prime minister make spending commitments then just to get through the weekend. Mm. Boris Johnson made about £16 billion worth of spending commitments in the weeks after he was appointed leader. Uh, and then there's no way he would have been able to take uh, consultation from other departments, his colleagues, etc. in that time. That's when things get frustrating. But, you know, John Glenn, as, as always, says it very well, and he knows the Treasury. He's been there a long time. The Treasury has to make sure that the decisions that are being made are not only 
wise, but that they are affordable over the medium and the long term. And remember, I'll just leave it at this. Our economy does not exist in a bubble. Brexit vote or no Brexit vote, we are a globalized economy and we do have to think beyond uh, the political platforms that are that are really the focus this summer and think about how the UK economy is interlinked globally. And, and, and that means we need to have more, more consideration for some of the long-term impacts of, of higher borrowing and higher interest rate payments, for example, because we do not want to make things worse for the generation that come after us. Well, Liz Truss, of course, was Philip Hammond's right-hand woman as Chief Secretary to the Treasury uh, during that government. Do you recognise now this, this idea of Treasury orthodoxy do you understand what she means when she says that? And, and do, you, do you think that's something you encountered as a team while you were there and to your detriment? Uh, leave off the last bit of the question. I'll take that separately. Mm. But yes, of course. I mean, and for, I'll just be clear. I mean, Liz Truss is, it can do the sums. She knows the vocabulary. She knows the people. She was there a long time. You know, she understands the Treasury. That is not always the case for the person holding the, the job of Prime Minister. And this is dependent on whether she gets it or not. But it is interesting that if she were to win, she does have a deep understanding of how the Treasury works. Yes. There is, a there is a certain way of doing things. Yes, people are in their positions uh, in the Treasury for many, many years at times. And yes, they could be more creative in exploring some of the newer ideas that are put on, their ta uh, on the table. But, but in the end, the buck stops with the Treasury. And, and if decisions are taken that do cause problems down the road, they will be held to answer for them, not the politician who will be long gone. And so that is why I, I really think it's not about smashing up the Treasury or transferring the power to number 10. I actually think it's about opening up communication uh, and, um, and, and working groups between the Treasury, which does have a tendency to sort of pull down the shutters, draw up the bridge and operate on its own. Opening up their way of working to other government departments so that the, the, their, uh, their mission of, of long-term affordable spending can be shared more widely and understood better by other departments. And also, those new ideas that are coming from other departments or even from the political arm in number 10 can be discussed more freely, more openly with, uh, with Treasury senior management. And I, I really think it's about a better working relationship and far more exposure to other Whitehall departments rather than bashing or smashing or transferring the power. It's about working together is how the Treasury can serve the nation. And it's also how number 10 can serve Whitehall as a whole, making sure that that expertise, that knowledge and that long term thinking is spread more evenly through Whitehall, because in my experience, usually it's the Treasury that is left with that responsibility. And just before I let you go, Poppy, I think underpinning a lot of the discourse among Tory MPs during this leadership race is the idea that Rishi Sunak frustrated Boris Johnson, that Boris Johnson couldn't do what he wanted because the Treasury was saying no. Obviously, the Prime Minister is technically as well the first Lord of the Treasury. In your experience, if a Prime Minister really wants something and the Chancellor doesn't want to give it to them, the Prime Minister can overrule his Chancellor or her Chancellor, can't they? They can, but they will be overruling many other officials and mm. lots of evidence and data. The Treasury don't make up these uh, these no's on a whim. There is, it is usually evidence-based. And that is why they need to work together, not at crunch moments, party conference, uh, just before the budget, but overall over the term of a leader, of a, of a chancellor and of a prime minister. And so a prime minister always, I suppose, 
could overrule the Treasury, but, but the consequences of that would be a total breakdown in a working relationship. And again, I come back to my very first point, Patrick, that actually the teams behind the leaders often do work incredibly closely together. I mean, we did sort of six fiscal events. You don't get, you, you just can't manage it unless your teams are working well together. And, and I think that mustn't be forgotten. And this talk of sort of smashing and bashing tre treasury orthodox orthodoxy that needs to be reformed. I think it actually does a disservice to a lot of people who, who do make an effort to, um, Make sure there's the a constructive decisions. relationship between the relevant parts yeah. of government. And, and listen, the answer can't be yes to everything. It just can't. And it is it is, is a, a truth undisputed. Prime ministers wish to spend, chancellors are tasked with saving or at least being a bit more cautious. And if you swap their roles over on a Freaky Friday day, for example, you'd find them taking on the, the attributes of the role that they're in. It is the nature of the office. And the way it can be successful is to work together more transparently, more openly. And that way the treasury can learn to take on a few more risks, but they can also explain some of the, the longer term uh, protections that they are tasked with, with maintaining. Well, Poppy Trowbridge, former special advisor to Philip Hammond on why not everybody in fact hates the treasury. Um, Really interesting discussion there. Now it's time to speak to some of the most loathed, one of the people who was one of the most loathed people on Whitehall, a Treasury official. Jeevan Sander is a former economist at HM Treasury and the Department for Working Pensions. He joins me now. Morning, Jeevan. Good morning. It's wonderful to be here. Wonderful to have you. And I'm surprised you're speaking under your own name because everybody on Whitehall during your time as an economist at the Treasury must have loathed you. Yeah, apparently so. I mean, look, I think part of it we heard in those comments earlier, you know, John Glenn saying, what is Treasury orthodoxy? And he said, everything the government that does that is unpopular. Actually, a major part of this is just political cowardice, right? Major part of it is the fact that when a politician does something bad, they don't own up to it. They go, oh, my God, of course, it's the Treasury. You know, referencing Rishi Sunak's furlough scheme, for example, do we think Rishi Sunak designed the furlough scheme because of his in-depth knowledge of the short working time scheme Germany's Kazarbite system. No, of course not. He went to Treasury officials, they gave him a set of options, and one of those options ended up being the furlough scheme. More broadly, as well, there are like there is an institutional problem with the Treasury, but that's reflective of the political makeup of the country. So the United Kingdom is the most politically centralized, or one of the most politically centralized countries in the OECD. It's also why one of the most geographically centralized countries in the OECD. And basically, there's a kind of conceit at the heart of the way our political system is designed which is that you know, six ministers and about 400 officials working on policy can spend about 700 billion pounds the interest of the country. Like one of the reasons we have to level up is because there's too much power concentrated in Westminster. And as a consequence, the finance ministry, which here is the treasury. And finally, one thing I would say, and there has been mistakes made by the treasury, is that the two greatest economic policy mistakes of the last century, the turn to austerity in 2010 and the, and the gold standard in 1920, there were Treasury officials were pushing senior politicians to do both of those decisions. You know, in 2010, it's it's Clegg and it's Cameron and it's Osborne, none of whom are economists, who are coming in being told by these very distinguished officials, as well as Mervyn King of the Bank of England, you must implement austerity or the financial markets will go crazy. Well, look what happened during COVID. We spent £400 billion and guess what? The markets didn't go crazy. Uh, they made the biggest economic policy mistake for a century. And in part, that was because of what senior officials in the Treasury told them. And that was a mistake on their part. So what do you make of the criticism levelled by Liz Truss and others during this leadership race that you, you were the problem? It was your Treasury brain 
that was the block on the government doing anything big and transformative? It wasn't the Treasury. I mean, look, I was a young civil servant. I was working on poverty and inequality under George Osborne. It won't surprise you to know he wasn't massively interested in, you know, the kind of things I wanted to do, right? We worked within the parameters that we had, but those parameters were set by the politicians of the time. George Osborne said, I want to cut public spending and I want to cut social security payments for those who aren't pensioners. Now that led to some of the huge rise in child poverty today. It led to some of the huge rise in food banks we see today. But that wasn't the Treasury orthodoxy. That was George Osborne's decision. And given Liz Truss was around the time as a minister, mm. also her decisions as well. So actually you can take responsibility or she can kind of blame someone else. But at the end of it, fundamentally, what do Treasury civil servants do? They provide options to ministers. And when ministers make a decision, they do that. And I'd say this as well for all of my colleagues there, former colleagues as well, they are brilliant, committed people. Like, you know, it's a really special place to Treasury. They're absolutely wonderful people. And you never meet, it's very difficult to find a place where you're so bright and have real ethos of public service. They are there to serve the country, it's what they do. And they do so without complaint either. And they don't brief ministers or brief papers when a minister makes the wrong decision. Well, I'm sure we'll be hearing much more briefing against officials like the one you once once were, Jeevan Sander, former economist at Her Majesty's Treasury, who just joined us on the line there to make the defence for Treasury Brain. Now, we've spoken to lots of people from inside the Treasury, of course. Now it's time to get the case for breaking it up. Stian Westlake is the head of the Royal Statistical Society. He joins me now. Morning, Stian. Morning. In a sentence, why should we break up the Treasury? The Treasury does too many things, and as a result, it doesn't do them well enough. That's really why we need to break it up. You've described it before as government by accountant, which I think a lot of Tory MPs will uh, will nick that line from you and use it to describe Rishi Sunak. But, but, but what's wrong with having a, a prudent approach to the balance book? Well, I've got a lot of good things to say about the Treasury. It is full of very smart people, some of the smartest people in government. They're very public spirited. People like John, who was on before, terrific ministers, very committed. But what John said about the Treasury just being the finance department is slightly misleading because the Treasury actually has two jobs. It's the finance director of the UK government, as it were, but it's also responsible for economic growth. And if you think of this from a business point of view, this is a really crazy mix. This is like having your chief accountant in charge of sales and business development. So if you're a country like the UK, which has had really disappointing and sluggish economic growth for the last 15 years, um, if you put your accountant in charge of that decision for how to grow the economy, you're going to get small C conservatism, you're going to get an aversion to taking risks, and you're going to get, in the end, probably lower growth than you'd otherwise want, which makes all your other political problems so much worse. So that is why, in short, everybody in Westminster seems to hate the Treasury. I think one thing to point out here is that the Treasury is pretty unusual compared to other countries. So this is not sort of some quixotic goal here. Mm. If you look at the US, in the US, the kind of finance and managing the departments is done by the Office of Management Budget. They have a separate Treasury. If you look at Germany, if you look at Australia, if you look at Canada, they have all split up these functions. And those are all countries that have uh, that seem to be managing some of these sort of stagnation trade-offs a lot better than we have. So this is not a kind of this is not us being un, this is not us proposing something unusual. The UK is in an unusual position as it currently is. And it's interesting, isn't it? One of the pre, only previous people to to discuss this seriously was Jeremy Corbyn. He 
considered reviewing the role of the Treasury, as Harold Wilson did before him. Do you think in Liz Truss we might finally get a Prime Minister who who succeeds in breaking it up? It's certainly something that a lot of radicals on one side or the other have considered. As you said earlier, Harold Wilson made an attempt at this, but it was also a big project of Dominic Cummings when mm. he was in number 10. Tony Blair almost did it, and I got slightly foiled by the Blair-Brown relationship. Um, it's, um, it's, it's something that has been very seriously considered. And, you know, it's possible Liz Truss, if she wants to be a reformer, she would consider either the breakup or some of the kind of more subtle things you could do in terms of increasing number 10's grip over some of these economic choices. Well, that's it for today's podcast. Make sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back tomorrow with more. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.